Hello and welcome back to the Miss Amanda Chen Show. We're now in season two of the 100 Mass Men series where I anonymously interview different men from all around the world about gender roles, expectations from society, and how that affects our self-worth. This month, we're taking a special focus on men's mental health, sponsored by Tether, the world's first online peer-to-peer support community connecting men for open and honest conversations about life. This week, I'm interviewing men that are challenging gender norms. Masterman number 39 is the stay-at-home dad. What I love the most about this interview is hearing about the jealousy other fathers felt for this man's life, wishing they could spend more time with their children. I feel like most dads were always mysterious, had their own shit going on, and were generally unavailable. So you ended up valuing their presence more. You never see dad doing the mundane, everyday stuff. That was always mom's job. Have you ever stopped to wonder if dad knows your blood type? or the last time you had a physical or a dental appointment. And of course, we have to get into the conversation of consent. But this time we unpacked sexual education in schools. This was a really cool chat, just to get a different perspective and just how important it is to have sex and consent conversations discussed both in school as well as at home. Let's get into it. I hope you enjoy the show. In some respects, my background was very typically English. Uh, in many respects, however, it wasn't. My father is actually French, and my parents uh, separated and subsequently divorced. They separated when I was two. So I was born in the UK, uh, but I spent the first two years of my life living in France before my parents separated. And I do have an older sister from my father's first marriage, which is relevant because when I came back to the UK with my mother, I saw my father again when I was three, Uh, but I didn't actually see him again until I was 16. When we came back to the UK, I lived with my mother, my grandmother and my aunt and uncle, uh, who were brother and sister, who, who didn't marry. So we were all in this, this this one house together. And actually, that was uh, it was quite an idyllic childhood. I was very happy during that period of my life. We were living in a... There weren't any friends or any other children around for me to play with. It, I mean, from that point of view, it was about as rural as southeast England gets. And then we had four houses, and uh, the tarmac on, on the road ran out uh, just, just outside our house. And it was, it was a one-car road very um, very quiet but I was very happy then my mother remarried when I was eight so left uh, that household and uh, I essentially grew up with, uh, with a stepfather uh, my stepfather and mother had two further children so there's, there's an age gap of about 10 years between myself and my uh, two brothers Actually, as, as I've got older, I've got more vocal about what it's like to be a stepchild because ultimately I think both my mother and stepfather were products of the what, what we in England call the, the public school system, which everywhere else they would have called the private school system because you pay for it. And I, I think the, the, the British public school system is particularly has a particular reputation. I don't think it... it necessarily produces people who are the 
emotionally the warmest. So when it came to discussing issues like gender or sex or that type of thing, I mean, my mother was actually remarkably open uh, in many respects. Um, my stepfather, I don't think I've ever had a conversation with him on you know, sort of personal matters like that. But conversations generally always revolved around, how can I put it, the, the, the mechanics of making babies and how to avoid you know, having children. There, was, there wasn't really any discussion uh, about relationships and spotting good relationships and bad relationships and so on, uh, which is something I've noticed and I take a very different approach with my two daughters and uh, very often uh, talk to them about relationships and what they should be uh, looking for in a relationship and so on and so forth. That's really interesting. So did your, did your actual father have any participation in, in sex or relationships or was it just like both sides of the stepfather as well as your actual father just kind of avoided that whole topic overall? Uh, well, my natural father definitely had involvement in sex and relationships because he's had children with three different women. But um, that's, <laughs> <laughs> did he have any, anything to do with, uh, I mean, no. I, um, uh, I, I want to be very careful what I say because I, I don't want to sound like I'm criticising anyone. But um, my my father basically did not have any uh, meaningful role. My natural father had no no meaningful role in my not my upbringing. No. Okay, so I know that you have. I think it's been about ten years now that you've chosen to be a stay-at-home dad. So, what was your reasoning for choosing to do that? Was there a reason for doing that? Was there like a turning point or an event that pushed you towards that direction? Yeah, um, I, I think a lot of people ask me that question and they expect me to come out with some, you know, blindingly philosophical answer. Uh, and the, the brutal hard truth is it was a pretty much entirely unemotional, practical decision. My wife had the greater earning potential. Uh, her career was really taking off. She really loved her job. I was not uh, happy in my job and I did, didn't have the, the same kind of earning potential. Uh, we were both full-time working parents. Well, I mean, my, my wife took a spell of leave from work after um, Helen and I, our oldest daughter, was born. But when she went back to work, she did go back from time very quickly. And I carried on working full time. We just thought that financially we had to. But I then did some sort of calculations and calculated that, well, do you know what? I could at least go to working part time and leave my job and spend more time with Helen. And because she was going into uh, childcare or daycare, I think you'd call it on that side of the Atlantic, we had missed a couple of the sort of significant moments in her life, like her first steps, because it happened childcare professionals. So I wasn't feeling happy with that, and my wife was feeling increasingly happy with that. So I just said, look, I'll do it. It just makes sense. It just makes sense for me to do this. Uh, and that's the decision that we took. And, and it is very interesting that you called me a stay-at-home dad, because actually at first uh, I took on a part-time job elsewhere, and I never called myself a stay-at-home dad. Everybody else called me a stay-at-home dad. 
even though I was still working. And I got called it so often that it just stuck. And I sort of had to start calling myself a stay-at-home dad. As it turns out, eventually we had a subsequently a second child uh, and it got too much for me to carry on uh, with, with my part-time job as I was doing then. So um, eventually I did actually become a stay-at-home dad, um, but it didn't happen for a couple of years. Not, not, not a stay-at-home dad as people think, but it, it's a really, really interesting discussion because stay-at-home, what is the definition of a stay-at-home parent? The stay-at-home parent who doesn't at least do something for money is incredibly rare because you can't afford it in this day and age. You know, it's, in most couples, both both parents have to work to some degree. Yeah, because I would think, especially because you have two kids, that you might need two incomes to sustain that. So is there has there been a lot of judgment in the sense of, you know, your society, people around you, peers kind of judging you on you taking a lazier approach to to your lifestyle in that sense? Uh, the, the responses have been fascinating, actually. Uh, from men, I imagined I was going to become the butt of jokes, that I was going to become the source of jokes and comedy material. There has been a little bit of that, but the story I always like to tell is the story of uh, we called this guy Starey George, uh, the builder, a uh, construction worker. We were we had some work done to our house, uh, and this guy he was near retirement age. I mean, he, he was well into his sixties, but he was doing some work to our house. And I was at home with our daughter, and every time this guy came to do work to our house, I was there with my daughter, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to have to tell him what our family situation is. And, and he stopped what he was doing just sort of stared in the middle distance for a few seconds and then said, you know what? I wish I'd been able to do what, you, what you're doing. I didn't see my kids growing up. I, I was always working. So, you know, that was, that was a generational thing there. I was expecting this guy to actually have quite a negative response to me, especially considering the stereotypically masculine occupation that he had. And that, that's actually quite typical of the response from men is almost jealous and, and that's almost a universal response they, they want to do this themselves and it's very very easy to underestimate just how much men want to dedicate more time to their families it's simply earning potential and other pressures from society essentially trap men in a role whereby they almost have to work that's obviously not the case for all men. For some men, yeah, they've got egos the size of Manhattan, but, but others, the majority don't, actually, in my, in my experience. The response from women, oh, that's been interesting. Some women are very open to having, you know, say a dad turn up at a parent and toddler group or turn up in the schoolyard. Many actually aren't. In fact, an experience I had when my eldest daughter actually started school and I was dropping her off in the schoolyard every day, I would, I was pretty much ignored by the, the mums until I made an appearance on national television discussing a parenting issue. As soon as I made that, <laughs> as soon as I'd appeared on TV, they wanted to talk to me. Uh, some women, I think, are actually threatened by a man in my position because uh, being a mother and having that caring status gives them gives them status and when a man suddenly comes along with 
his child who is polite and is educated and uh, is well fed and all the things you would expect the child to be it sort of threatens their uh, their identity almost so um, sometimes women are not the most open and accepting to a guy in my position and I actually thought it, the roles would almost be reversed when I became the main carer of the kids I, I, I almost thought that men would be the ones who'd be hostile to me and the women would actually be, be more accepting. I think that's really interesting. I think that because of that role reversal, I think that, I mean, for me, I've had men look at me in my professional career and view me as a threat because men should be the one making the money, the one with the success and everything else. So on the flip side, I would have women looking at me in a jealous way or in an aspirational way saying like, wow, I wish I could be as successful as you. So I would have that on the flip side. And then when I think of potentially wanting to be a stay-at-home mom or you know, kind of taking more of a caretaking position, all of the women would be like, well, that's what you should be doing, right? There's all of this judgment and expectations yes. of what that should be. And then there would be men that would say like, isn't that awesome that you get to choose? because men kind of think like, well, we have to be the caretaker. We have to be the provider. So we don't have a choice. We have to go to work. If we don't, then we're kind of lacking in our masculine role in society as the, the main breadwinner. So what do you think the role of masculinity is in your society? Well, actually, I heard a really interesting uh, description of that the other day, that we shouldn't actually talk about masculinity and femininity. What we should actually talk about is masculinities and femininities, because they come uh, in, in many, many different forms. You know, why shouldn't a woman be a power lifter? You know, uh, why shouldn't a man, oh gosh, I don't know, uh, be a ballet dancer? The way I always describe, the way I describe my role is as a carer, I think there is nothing more masculine than being a, a carer. It, it's got responsibility with a capital R stamped upon it. There is nothing more masculine than caring uh, for those that you love. Now, in my case, that's my children and, of course, my wife. But for someone else, the person they're caring for, you know, we mustn't forget the other carers that are, that are out there, the men who are caring for ill or disabled spouses or partners or, you know, whoever. They could be caring for anyone. Um, and we don't actually acknowledge or accept the fact that men are, uh, are naturally caring individuals. There's a report produced every couple of years by a charity called Promundo, which... It's called the State of the World's Fathers Report, and they basically pull in uh, academic research and, and studies done across the world on fatherhood. And it's 2015 report, I quote it all the time, where it, it ends with the words saying that men and women are as genetically hardwired as each other to fulfil caring roles, but that men do not have the opportunities to do so. Of course, the flip side of that, Amanda, it's exactly what you've just described. Women do not have the same opportunities in the workplace, but we are not actually going to achieve true gender equality between the two sexes until women have equality in the workplace, true equality, and men 
have true equality in the domestic front. And I think that is where we have considerable work to do to get to, to give men those opportunities and to break down those barriers because there is nothing unmasculine about caring. Yeah, and I think that's huge. I think there's just been so much noise, obviously, about women in the workforce because it's so quantifiable. You know, it's easier to assess that and to judge on someone's self-identity based on what they do. You know, that's the beginning of everyone's conversation. Hi, how are you? What do you do, right? But on the other side of domestic roles, it's mainly unavailable, right? Like, would you say that there hasn't been a lot of discussion or support uh, around men that want to take more caring roles? Like, is there, would you say it's basically inaccessible? What I would say is things are changing. Uh, obviously, I've been a father now for just over a decade. And the way I, I, if I put that into a fatherhood context, if I think about when my eldest daughter was born, the question that men faced then was, is he going to be a hands-on dad? The question that is asked of men these days is, how hands-on is he going to be? So there has been some progress. And actually, COVID-19 and the impact of COVID-19, obviously, it's been horrendous. We're all pissed off with it. You know, it's had a dreadful impact on the world. We all know that. But when it comes to what's happened on the domestic front, something that I feel has been drastically underreported is what men have been doing domestically during this crisis. There has been an increase on the domestic burden as children have had to be both homeschooled and or parents have had to, to work from home as well. And more of that domestic burden has fallen on women than it has men. But I can only talk from a UK perspective. I, I, I don't know what the you know what, what situation is in Canada, but I, I would imagine it's pretty much the same. But from um, there's been various pieces of academic research and studies have been carried out during the pandemic, and they are showing a pretty consistent pattern of behaviour. That yeah, sure, women are taking have more of the burden has fallen on, on women, but men have been doing more at home at the same time. And actually, there's one particular interesting piece of research based on uh, Britain's Office of National Statistics studies. It's done by a charity called the Fatherhood uh, Institute. And it's actually the removal of the commute to work and the commute back seems to have done more to unlock men's potential as carers than sort of almost anything else. With that time being made available to men, they are using that time spend with the kids that I don't think is getting enough attention yes we should all be talking about how, how much the domestic burden has fallen on women but if we don't actually talk up and look positively on on the changes that have happened over the past few months uh, then we will never actually cement them in place and that has the potential to unleash a lot of potential talent in, that is missing from the workforce and women while also unleashing men's talent and ability to actually care for those closest to them. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool that it's about just the transportation time, that once you remove that to and fro, all of a sudden there's this abundance of time that you can finally start spending. And 
And absolutely. I think we've just forgotten to think of like, it's not like dads don't want to be at home. They just feel like they have another responsibility and it's more, do you think there's like a guilt of like, well, I got to go and make the money. So I can't, I can't hang around for too long, but then, you know, I'll feel bad if, if I'm, if I'm not there or I come home and the kids are already asleep. Like, is there a lot of guilt you would think that comes from dads that work in very high positions? Uh, Amanda, if you forgive me for saying so, you don't have children, do you? I don't, no. You don't, no. And, and no, it's, it's very interesting. The way you phrased that question, it, it made it clear to me that you don't. Fatherhood guilt, um, again, is one of those things that is massively underrecognized. You see a lot of women writing about uh, mum guilt. So you have moms in Canada, don't you? Yes. You have moms. Yes, you do. You have moms. So we, we, we spell it with a U. It's mums over here. I don't know why. But anyway, that's that's another story. But so uh, fatherhood guilt is a massive, massive thing. I wish I could explain how I know that, but I'd blow my anonymity. <laughs> <laughs> but men feel dreadfully guilty uh, as, as a Again, I shouldn't say that to most men. I, I hate these sort of generalizations when I speak for entire genders, but the majority of men do feel very guilty when they have to go to it, they don't spend so much time with their children. I, I heard uh, an academic at an event the other day where she was talking about some research that she's doing, and she said that there was, she was talking to a father who has obviously been working at home during the pandemic, and the comment she made, uh, this, this man made to this, this particular academic, was that he'd seen more of his children in the past year than he had in the previous 12 years because he was always out working. Uh, we have to, you know, the, guys, they, they, I mean, guys contact me versus tell me about the guilt that they feel. It's, it's a huge, huge issue, but it's a typical guy thing. Guys don't speak up. We're not raised to talk about our feelings or to talk about how we feel. So we've got to break down that barrier, which is another element of masculinity. Actually, men should be uh, much more open uh, because we are emotional beings, but we're taught to repress it in our childhood. So when you were brought up with a pretty cold father figure, who I don't know whether or not they were guilty <laughs> or not guilty of you know, not being around so much, now that you're a father yourself, how has how has that been different for you? How have you have you noticed other households maybe where the father is less present and you know seeing how the children grow? You know what what do you think happens when I would say young men grow up without a father figure compared to one that was always there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I need to be a little bit careful to answer that because. To say I had no father figure would, would be uh, wrong. My, my stepfather was a, you know, was a father figure. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, there were times where we got on better than, than other times, which is pretty typical of, of, of step uh, parent stepchild relationships. But how? Um, but I, I do see families where you can kind of see that the dad feels it is his role to go out and earn and everything else is almost dumped on the woman of the household. 
Um, I think actually the reality is in most families, the way I, I feel it works is that dad, he is actually a present figure and much more present than maybe fathers were 20, 30, 40 years ago, where dad may actually take the kids out at the weekends when he, when he is around. He may uh, do the, the school run uh, occasionally you will see him at, say, school parent-teacher evenings. You will see him, uh, you, you might see him. Uh, normally, women do outnumber men probably about three or four to one, but you may see them at school sports day. Uh, and, and most dads have that kind of involvement with their kids, which, as I say, 30, 40 years ago, wouldn't have been there. But I, I have what I call the healthcare test. This, this is how I... I, I Engage whether just how involved a father is with his kids. Has uh, does a man know the postal address of the family's general practitioner? Has a man ever taken his children to a routine medical appointment? Has a man ever taken his child to a routine dental checkup? And bonus points if he has taken his children for a routine che uh, checkup at the opticians okay now a man in my position has done all of those things many times but very few men can actually say they have done all of those things okay that, that's that's how i that's how i can tell just exactly uh, how, how involved the father is and i have to stress that isn't necessarily a criticism okay because every family should work the way that is best for that family and if dad is in the military and he's doing a tour of duty for six months at a time he actually can't do those things a lot of the time that doesn't mean that he isn't a great dad but it's just my little test you know well I think that's interesting because I think of like I guess more of a traditional family household of like good cop bad cop you know, mm -hmm. mom is bad cop and dad is good cop because dad's kind of not really there that often. So when he is there, it's always a celebration. The kids can get away with stuff. It's always like a fun weekend. It's playtime. There's something exciting that happens. And like you're saying right now, in terms of business as usual, any of those natural functions going for healthcare or, you know, routine things, you know, picking up kids from soccer practice, anything like that, that's traditionally put onto a woman's role because usually the dad just gets all the fun parts, usually if he's not as present in, in the household. So how do you think that affects what, I mean, I would think with young girls that get brought up in that system where they would only get that exciting aspect of a man in their life when it's like, it's fun. They always get all of this excitement. And then when they crave more tension, he's just unavailable because he goes back to business as usual, which is usually not present. So now that you have two daughters and that you're very present with them, how do you educate them on what they should be expecting in a relationship? Because I think now in the 21st century, a lot of women, young women that are dating today really settle for just not even the bare minimum of expectations of men based on that understanding of men are just not going to be around. Yeah, uh, uh, difficult and I, I do sometimes find myself thinking that I wish women would stop pre procreating with a certain kind of man, but you know, what can you do? <laughs> um, uh, no, I do. I do talk. I mean, obviously, it's, it's quite difficult. So one of my daughters is eight years old, 
the other is 11. So every, everything's always got to be age appropriate. Uh, and actually very often it, it's more a case of talking about friendship problems that they have had and the same to them. So, you know, when you're older, you know, if, if you have you know, a boyfriend and uh, he slaps you like such and such just has done, you know, what would you do? How would that make you feel? What, what would you think about that? And that, that, that's, I suppose that's more of an extreme example of, of, of what you're asking. But I would also, I mean, I also have to make to the point to them that they are growing up in a family that is non-traditional, whereby they will see me uh, as their main carer. I mean, the question I'm, I'm very often asked is, who do your kids come and wake up at night uh, if they've had a nightmare? And it's me. My, my, my wife doesn't get uh, disturbed at night that way. Uh, they come to me. They see me as, as the, the kind of carer. And I do have to say to them that, you know, when you are older, should you, know, should you settle down and get married and have children, your family isn't necessarily going to work this way. I mean, I hope to some degree it will, obviously, you know, based on my experiences, which is a very sad thing to have to sort of say to your kids, actually. But it, it, it sort of is the reality, I'm afraid. I mean, I would obviously hope to think that we have progressed as a society uh, even further by that point, and uh, you know, men and women caring roles and so on, it will be much more widely accepted. But I have to be honest and accept the fact that how rare it is for a man to actually give up a job and concentrate on family and home. It is rare. And if my children go out into the world thinking that, hey, that's the norm, that's what's going to happen when I settle down, they are potentially on the road to disappointment. And so I, it is a case of having to be realistic with them um, and kind of point out that they're not necessarily going to get that, but that they need to make sure that any relationships that they are involved with are positive, that they are fulfilling, that they feel loved, that they're not being used, that they're not um, being abused. And that's me trying to answer about 14 questions at once. I'm drifting right off. Yeah. Um, I think that's interesting that you're really cautionary about your kids and their expectations of what their own adult household is going to look like. Because normally people would just aspire to have exactly the same life lifestyle that they had already but here you are kind of being a little bit more honest about that because I think a lot of families like to pretend that their family household is the perfect household and we should all aspire for the same version of that I would like to just ask you about your kids are first off they're both you're they're both daughters right so you're you're the main carer they're slowly approaching puberty so what is sex education like in the UK? Is it very conservative? How is sex traditionally learned? How was it learned for you? And what are some uh, some challenges that you might be facing, or any anything that you might have anything that you might be afraid of in terms of you know addressing that topic with your children? Okay, stop me when I've said too much because I could talk about this. All day. I'll take the okay, first things first. How is sex education taught in the UK? The British are notoriously cold, uh, or can be, um, and not always that open when it comes to talking about uh, emotionals or handling difficult or what can be considered uh, difficult subjects. 
such as sex education. And one of the things that uh, I find really quite depressing is when I hear parents um, talking about how they're basically going to leave sex education up to their child's school, where uh, thankfully, of course, we have rather like Canada is, is provinces and territories in the UK now, this is a change that's happened in my lifetime. Of course, we've devolved. So England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland do actually have separate education systems. So I can only talk about the, the English system from experience. Um, they'll be very similar. Though. But uh, in England, they just actually introduced relationships into the sex education programme. So not only do you learn about, uh, you know, this is a penis, this is a vagina, you know, and, and, and what happens when biologically when you have sex, but there is now discussion about uh, relationships and what a healthy relationship should look like. Now, I am personally very, very, very much a believer that these conversations should start at home and they should be had at home. I, it depresses me when I hear of parents who think it's a school's job or who are too um, uptight to discuss these issues with their children. I will go so far as to say that it's rank hypocrisy because your children wouldn't exist if you have not had sex. The small number of surrogate and adoptive families, obviously, uh, aside, but uh, the odds on those parents being virgins being incredibly small. <laughs> So I think uh, parents need to get over it, um, and parents, those parents that are shy about discussing these things, need to open up and need to discuss these things uh, with their uh, with their kids. And it was sort of handed to me. Uh, I know I've been talking to my kids since a very young age, mostly talking about relationships and so on. They do know how a baby's how babies are made. And in fact, the catalyst for that was finding my eldest daughter sitting um, on the bathroom floor, surrounded by packets of my wife's tampons. And of course, these days they come with a sort of discreet, um, attractive looking packaging. Uh, and she was opening them up uh, to check if there were any ice creams inside because she thought they were ice creams. And it's surprising how many stories like that you hear where kids exactly. think they're mice or something like that. Um, so that was sort of you know, eased into the, the discussion about biology from there, about how, how babies are made. So it, it is a case of being open and available and saying to your kids, you know, I'm here to, to talk to you about anything. Second part of your question, uh, how did I learn about sex? Well, I, uh, my mother, I have to say, was incredibly open maybe too open in one or two ways. I, you know, I say that, but I was actually quite late in finding out about certain things. And I don't think it was until my mother had remarried when I was eight that I discovered that uh, women don't have penises. You know, I, I was quite late on, on, on that, learning that. Whether that was because I was... Uh, Growing up with, with my grandmother and older aunt and uncle in quite a conservative household. I don't think they were too conservative. They weren't that conservative. But there might, it was my mother actually uh, spoke to me 
there was no discussion with my stepfather at all uh, on issues like that. I don't know if maybe he did have discussions with my brothers. I, I, I couldn't honestly tell you. They, they would be his children, you know, his natural children. Um, I certainly know they've had certain conversations about relationships as my brothers became adults. I'd say based on my experiences and talking to other people, I don't think my experience is hugely untypical for a British kid's upbringing. I'd like to think that younger generations are going to get over any hang-ups that they've got about sex. I mean, France is 22 miles away across the, the English Channel, and of course they have a completely different approach to talking and discussing these things. And I just wish the British could be more French, actually dealing with these issues other uh issues so did you ask me about concerns i had about my kids finding out about about sex, sex. Yeah. yeah so yeah i think a lot of kids back then accidentally came across it like you i mean i know that i found like a box of porn in my parents bedroom that's how i learned about it and i think it's how a lot of people do either you learn about it from like an older sibling or an older cousin or your parents and it begins with porn and you get curious and you don't really know what you you're looking at and i think there's so much access now that that can occur pretty naturally like without an older figure introducing a younger person into that space now so with that curiosity and with just how porn can be represented you know, I think it can be very dangerous very quickly on, you know, what the expectations of sex should be like um, if you get introduced to it at a very young age. Oh, you've mentioned the whole word. And so this, this, is, the, this is the point where I'm going to go completely off the leash and probably offend a few people. If I do offend a few people, you're the people that should be offended. Uh, I think porn is extremely damaging to young people. Uh, yes, I did come across a certain amount of porn when I was growing up. Not actually from family members, I have to say, from sort of other sources. Now, when I was growing up, porn was in a magazine. Uh, it had to be printed on paper. Not anymore. Porn is available online, everywhere and anywhere. And I am, this is where I've got huge concerns with my daughters and their generation and the issues that the porn is creating, the online porn is creating for these, for these youngsters. The research out there shows that sexual activities such as BDSM, anal sex, uh, and, and activities such, such as choking during sex are becoming more and more common and it's happening at a younger and younger age. And the theory is that this is because of access to porn. And there's a book written by a, a superb British feminist writer called Rebecca Asher. It's called Man Up. I would encourage anyone to read it. It's basically a study of why boys grow up to be the men that they become. And one of the issues that Asher actually looks at is access to porn and what she writes about. I think it would, any right-thinking person, it would change the way they viewed porn forever. I know experiences with my children and mobile phones. You only need one or two kids in a class whose parents don't really watch what their kids are doing online to create a really toxic environment. And this is what is happening with Paul. This is what is happening with Asha, what, what, what Asha found in her book. 
she found that you get boys, you know, maybe one or two kids whose parents don't really keep an eye on what they're what the kids are doing. They start watching porn. They introduce other kids to watch porn. These are 11, 12, 13, 14 year old, generally boys. At that age, you are you are you are logically hardwired to want to belong. So that these young kids, they start watching porn. And actually, a lot of the kids that Asher was interviewing were traumatised by what they were seeing. And she tells one story in, in her book, and I'm sorry, I'm going to get quite graphic here, uh, about a boy who watched uh, a video on some other kid's phone about a nugget, a sexual activity with a nugget. Do you know what a nugget is? No. No, Okay. It's basically, it was, it was a, a disabled woman who had no arms and legs. Uh, sexual acts were being performed on her in this video. Full punitive sex, as far as I'm aware. Uh, and boys were watching this video, but there was one boy in her book who was really traumatised by this. And this is, the, this is what kids now have access to on their phones. And, you know, my eldest kid gets the bus to and from school with kids aged from 11 to 18. I have no idea what people are watching on their phones and, and what's being passed around that school bus and what's being looked at on the way to from school. Neither does any parent. But porn is there. It is pervasive. It is everywhere. And the discussion about porn and whether it is exploitative, the debate is very poor quality. It almost always focuses on whether it's exploiting the performance it's actually the end consumer we should be looking at because these clicks are advertising room. And these, the, the guys producing this don't give a shit who is clicking uh, on, on these pictures and who is watching the films and watching the videos. If it's a teenage boy, it's just additional revenue. These boys are actually, these boys are victims, frankly. And parents need to be aware of this because it is a huge, growing issue. Uh, and uh, the porn industry, as far as I'm concerned, has got a lot to answer for. And I do hear um, of people, but there's quite a bit more discussion these days about feminist porn. I, I get that that's going to appeal to people who maybe want to see something from, you know, seeing women being pleasured during a, a porn film or something. And I don't mean to be the moral police here. It's one thing if a couple of consenting adults want to watch the porn and the video's been made with uh, consenting adults, but there's no control over who is actually watching the stuff. I mean, it's got well out of hand, and feminist porn is still porn, and there's still an element of exploitation there. And I'm I'm quite happy to say that, and probably get shot down in flames from a lot of other <laughs> people. But I think the the impact. Mobile phones, cell phones, whatever you call them in Canada, they're killing childhood. And porn is one of the biggest issues. You know, I think that's really interesting. I've heard on the show a lot of men challenging the idea of porn, saying that, you know, it is pretty destructive to, to young men growing up. And I wasn't, I mean, I think on the other side, women don't really talk about sex with other women until they have a relationship with a man and then the man kind of introduces them into having sex. So a lot of women that I know, like they didn't know about sex until it was introduced when, with their actual partner. 
but I believe that there should be some education for young girls today on sexual expression and understanding their own bodies and to not rely on their sexual pleasure on a man, whoever, you know, they end up engaging with, because then there is more of a power control dynamic. And I think if these young men are watching porn, they take advantage of that exploitative nature of porn and assume that this is how you're supposed to behave with women. And so both of those aspects of women having zero knowledge and men getting all the knowledge through porn is what creates that self-destructive nature. So I think it's really interesting that you're talking about more about relationships and that relationships are into the conversation of sex education. So where do you think the conversation of consent is? And, you know, I think because porn is such a taboo or sex is such a taboo subject, obviously kids are searching up porn and wanting to know about sex and sexual parts. And I think also at that age, they're also investigating in drugs and alcohol and other substances that are just, you know, taboo that parents don't talk about or don't allow them to talk about or anything that's basically off limits for them is, is their curiosity. So how would you want to speak to young people today and kind of equalize that front? Because, you know, it's not one thing to remove porn because you still have to bring in the sexual education somehow. And I think women have really been lacking in that front because they don't have that access or it's always been like a man educating them only in the perspective of their relationship. Yeah, um, really, uh, really good question. And it's, it's, it's fascinating what you say there about women really finding out about sex until they actually have uh, a sexual part, which just highlights the importance on us uh, parents shouldering the responsibility and talking to our kids about sex and what what are what healthy relationships are, and yes, we have got to this point in a discussion without even mentioning consent. I mean, consent uh, is such a, a big, big issue, and you know, such a shame. It sort of had to take uh, the downfall of someone like you know Weinstein to to. to get through the Me Too moment going, get that discussion going, which actually presents some issues for uh, someone such as myself with children of my kids' age, because really they should maybe be a year or two older before having those. I mean, I've, they've seen things on news reports and asked them what's happened there, what's in there? And, and sort of try to explain to them what's happened. It just sort of goes over their heads. But these are certainly conversations that I will be having with, with along with uh, my wife. We'll, we'll do it together so they have true and full understanding of consent and what that means. Uh, and I think I'm right in saying that that is actually part of the school curriculum uh, with the relationship education that goes on in schools uh, in England. But I, I'm glad it's there and I'm glad that discussion is being had in schools, but it's a shame that it has to be. I mean, those discussions have to start at home. They should be home. Well, I think there's a lot of practice in both consent and boundaries in just general relationships. They don't have to be romantic relationships. And you're right. I think they deserve to be in the household. Like if 
a family member wants to give your kid a hug and they don't feel like it, they should be able to express whether or not they consent to that kind of physical touch, right? Or anything, but then also understand when they're having a tantrum and they're being a child in comparison to, you know, having full access of your own body and explaining what that means. So I think no one's ever practiced that before. So how, how can we expect young adults to practice that suddenly today when there's just a random outbreak of news articles, you know, like, I don't think I know it very well. So if I don't know it very well to be able to practice it very well, to be able to speak about it very well, I don't think it's being reported very well. And then I also don't think that the school system knows how to then explain it because no one has any clarity. Yeah, yeah, and, and you're, you're absolutely right. It's very interesting you say that your uh, that any partners you've, you've maybe had have struggled with the notion of consent as well, because, um, I mean, gosh, when I was growing up, consent was, you know, nothing more than it's either rape or not rape, which is a very brutal thing to say, but there, there was, uh, you know, the, it, I mean, it was quite, I'm not saying it's necessarily behaviour that I... Uh, partook in but you know the boys would go up and then you know ping a, a girl's uh, bra strap I mean my mother-in-law you know tells stories of uh, how men would, would come up and sort of put on her uh, suspenders you know when she was at work and that type of thing and she, she just sort of casually brushed that off which of course if you did that to a woman today you'd probably end up on the wrong side of a lawsuit and quite rightly but it should, it should get to that point. How do, I mean, yeah, because the issue with schools, of course, is you've got kids from so many backgrounds where you will have the kids who were brought up properly and have been set proper boundaries. Um, and you will have, unfortunately, those families where those boundaries don't, uh, don't exist. And I suppose that's the role that schools have actually got, is to step in where the parents are, uh, are failing, unfortunately. But yeah, it's, and, and you, you you are right as well, and it is discussions that I have with my children about consent that happens to their bodies. No, you don't have to have a, a, a hug if you don't want to, and you don't have to kiss from that uh, grandparent. But that that does lead to. Uh, I mean, I was having this discussion with another father actually once, where he was saying that uh, basically all, all non-consensual touching of a, of a child's body is wrong, and then I threw one at him well what about getting the child's hair cut or what if they need dental treatment what if they need hospital treatment you know so that i, I think you know children are sort of going to have to learn that there are points where yet yeah, parents have actually got a right to say no i'm sorry you 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 have got to have that tooth removed or you have got to have braces fit in or you know you've bumped your head four times today i'm afraid it's time you've got your fringe cut you know that there are there are sort of different levels of consent almost, aren't there? I mean, it's it's it's, it's a fascinating discussion actually, uh, and and sort of having to decide where you draw the line and where, where, where you don't draw the line in in having those discussions and whereby where you as a parent have to say actually, I've got consent. You know, I, what I say has got to go on this occasion, and of course that changes as your children get older as they take on more responsibility uh, for themselves. But is it but yeah, I mean, schools have got to, to when it comes to relationships and intimate relationships. As I, I'll go back to say what I said before. Those discussions should be had at home and very detailed and in depth 
uh, conversations, and it's a case of having small conversations very often. Just to contradict myself and say they should be very detailed, <laughs> but, uh, but schools have got a role in reinforcing what is said at home. Absolutely, yeah, that makes sense for sure. Like I think there needs to be a more responsibility on the household to begin that conversation and continue practicing it. And then that would be further enforced through school and not the only place where they can practice it. So I wanna wrap up with two questions for you. The first question is what negative ideas do your female friends have about themselves that you wish could change? That's the first question, yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> what <laughs> negative ideas do uh, female friends have that I wish they could change? I would actually say body image. I think if all the women I know obsess to a greater or lesser degree about what they look like, be that body size, be it the fact they're not, they don't like their nose, or you know, it could, could be anything really. But I, I, I think women do worry. Uh, the women I know anyway, pretty much women do worry to a greater or lesser degree about their physical appearance. That's not to say that I don't worry about my physical appearance, because I can assure you I do. But it's it's definitely ingrained with women, and it's definitely one of those things that you are taught from a very young age as a woman carry into adulthood I'm afraid I think that's very sad yeah I think I mean a lot of responses has been about that and you know general self-confidence and I think yeah that has been predominantly a woman's issue you know just body image and that need and that pressure to look a certain way in society and that expectation and I think um, in other facets of life people have been able to just be comfortable with themselves, but I think there's still a lot to work with, which is, you know, media and pop culture and, and all of those expectations, right? So it's that's a long, long game for sure. It, it is. I'll, I'll just make the one comment on that, if you'll forgive me, which is that uh, it is a huge issue for women. But one of the comments that I sometimes hear women make is I talk to my daughters about positive body image. I always hold them up and say, why don't you talk to your sons? Because if you actually plotted it on a graph, it, like issues with, with female uh, body image would be pretty linear. You know, I'm not saying it's an increasing problem, but if you were to, to look at how the impact on men and men with eating disorders, it's, it's, picked up massively and it, it's it's I've got to say if I think back to when I was 15 I felt under a lot of pressure to comply and look a certain way and carry myself a certain way with Instagram with TikTok the pressure that kids feel under today is massive and yes that is impacting on women and of course you should talk to your daughters about positive body image but if you have got sons you're missing a trip and not speaking to them as well and these guys, boys, will grow up to be fathers of the future, and they need to look out for these issues in their own daughters. So these discussions are going to be had with guys as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. It definitely goes both ways. And I think the conversation needs to be like the subject needs to be discussed, but it should be approached differently depending on which gender. Um, yeah. My last question to you is based on all of the topics we talked about today, did anything resonate with you that you would like to invite another man to elaborate on further in another episode on the show? I am always, uh, of course, you know, fatherhood is my thing. Um, oh, I'm close to blowing my anonymity again, aren't I? Uh, possibly because of my, uh, my my background, having uh, been a lifelong stepchild and also with a, with a, uh, a father who wasn't present during my upbringing. I would be really intrigued to hear from other men about how their fathers spoke to them about sex, because I, my, my impression, my idea, yes, and you may have to go for a non-British man for this, because if it's a, a, a British man, if he spoke to his children about sex, he was probably drunk at the time. <laughs> you, um, I think men can fall into three ways, either they're, they're open and and quite happy and honest to talk about it. And that's going to be a very small number of guys. Uh, and you're going to have those who just do not talk about it at all. And then you've got those who say, go speak to your mother. I just love to, it'd be interesting to see what, um, what other people's experiences are and have been. Yeah. You know what? That's interesting. I've always heard about fathers talking about like having an awkward conversation on sex with daughters, but no one really shares their own personal sex education story with their fathers. So I'd, I'd have to find some new examples for that. But I think that would contribute a lot to how people approach that conversation today. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. All right, very cool. Thank you so much for this this chat. It was very dynamic, I like it. So yeah. Well, thank it. you for, for asking me um, to participate, Amanda, and best of luck. Uh, with, with, with the rest of the, the series. Um, I, I've listened to a few of the episodes myself. Uh, they're great. I'd encourage anyone else to, to listen to, uh, to awesome. 100 Last Challenge accepted. Anyone want to share their stories on fathers giving the sex talk? Does the conversation happen between father and son? Or is it just father and daughter or mother and son or mother and daughter? I think it's wild to see the rise in pressure among young men today. And if you are looking for a space to chat about sensitive subjects, make sure to check out Tether. I think it's insane that we're in 2021 and we're just having this tool available now for peer-to-peer -peer community between men. Make sure to subscribe. And if you'd like to be on the show or know of someone with a unique perspective, slide into my DMs at Miss Amanda Chen on Instagram. And I'll see you next Wednesday with more episodes of The 100 Masked Men. <laughs>